would, grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 15. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those blue hardback Bibles that look like this. Turn to Luke chapter 15. Uh, the passage is not going to be on the screen. It's going to be just in your Bible. So uh, grab a Bible, turn to page 1039 if you're using one of these blue hardback Bibles. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for worship this morning. My name's Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. We're going through the parables of Jesus this summer, and we're into the parable of lost things. Now, this is Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's printed word out in front of them. Now, with that in mind, friend, let's hear the teachings of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 1, chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners... Oh, sorry, y'all are supposed to boo when I say that. Now, the tax collectors and sinners... Boo! boo yeah, right? Okay, all right. Training you all to be Pharisees. Very good, right? Now, the bad people, the tax collectors and the sinners, were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the really religious people, grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for lost things. And Father, we thank you that you sent your son to be the great shepherd of the sheep to call us by name. And Father, I pray that each one of us would hear your voice calling us by name this morning. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit inside each of your people would learn to see the joy of the Father finding the lost sheep and the lost coins. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I have to make a confession this morning to all of you because I stole this morning. And I didn't just steal from one person, I stole from two. I stole from Pastor Richard and I stole from Pastor Scott. So I raided their office this morning, so I apologize. Uh, but uh, you know what these are? Anybody know what these are? They're little magnets. Richard and Scott have these cool, like, whiteboards that are somehow magnetic. I don't understand how that's possible, but they're whiteboards that are magnetic. They're very cool. And, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in the mood for a parable, right? So what do magnets do when you put them together? Ooh. What do magnets do when you put them together? Hmm. It's a 50-50 split. Right? When you put magnets together, what do they do? Well, they do that. Unless, of course, you do what? Well, well, yeah, if you, if you get the magnet, you know, on the north and the south pole going together, they stick together. But what happens if you try to put, you know, magnets that don't want to match? What do they do? They repel. Why do magnets do that? Isn't that funny? Anyone ever studied magnets? 
you know, if you were, even if you were to like split a magnet, if you split a magnet, it would still have a north and a south pole, right? Uh, the reason I bring up magnets to you is because I think God speaks to us, not just in the words of Scripture, but all throughout creation, if you have eyes to see it. Like there's a rhythm of life that you and I should tap into, and God wove it into creation. There's a day and there's a nighttime. And then every seventh day, we take a day of rest that's woven into creation, right? And there's a sense that God communicates through very simple things if you have eyes to see it. There's something to a magnet that if you have the eyes of faith, you can actually see the handwriting of the author of creation. And friends, I think when you see magnets, um, I love that people were clever enough. It's, you guys are at the first service. It's because you're, you're still high on your coffee right now. You've got your caffeine kick. 1030, they may not be as quick on the draw. But there's a sense that a magnet can actually be incredibly magnetic in pulling two things together. But at the same time, if you were to flip one side, it would repel, right? And so what do you think God's communicating in that? I think there's actually a, uh, a parable in the magnet about the way that people hear the voice of Jesus Christ. For some people, they will hear his voice and they will be magnetically drawn to what Jesus has to say. And then there are going to be other people, when they hear the voice of Jesus Christ, they will be utterly repelled by it. And if you got two really strong magnets and you put them on the same poles, right, and you tried to force those two things together, you can't. <laughs> Unless, of course, one of them repents and turns. But if it's the same, they'll push each other away. Now, what's really surprising, if you were to look down at the Gospel of Luke, and this is the great surprise of the Gospel, is who's magnetically drawn to the teachings of Jesus Christ? Who are the people that can't help but draw near to be brought into the magnetic field of Jesus. Well, look what the Gospel of Luke says. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all, so to speak, magnetically drawn to Jesus. They're stuck to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes, that is the religious leaders of the day and the people who were exceptionally moral, very good at being good people, and also slightly condescending, right, and definitely judgmental, those people grumbled at Jesus. And what do they say in verse 2? Look down at verse 2. What does it say? What is their complaint? This guy, this man, receives sinners and eats with them. That word right there, receives, means not just uh, he talks to them when they speak to him, but there's this sense that he allows them into his sphere. He sits down and has meals with these people, and friends, we can never, ever, ever let that surprise of Jesus leave our minds. Uh, you know, I was really shaped when I came to Christ in college by a German guy. Uh, I know many of you have heard of him. I did think about naming Bo Dietrich Bonhoeffer Jernigan, but I love my children too much to do that to them. I get, if we have like 10 more kids, maybe I'll run out of names and we can do Dietrich Bonhoeffer Jernigan, but hopefully that won't happen. But right when I came to faith in Jesus during college, for some reason, my father mailed me a book by this German theologian who had died during World War II. He actually was put to death by the SS in a concentration camp by the Nazis. And writing in uh, The Cost of Discipleship in this book, uh, he says something that has always resonated with me. It's probably because I had just come to faith in Jesus, so everything felt a little bit more visceral to me. But Bonhoeffer wrote these words in the very first page of The Cost of Discipleship. He says, what we want to know is not what this or that man or this or that church would have of us, but what Jesus Christ himself wants of us. When we go to church and listen to the sermon, what we want to hear is his word, and not merely for selfish reasons, 
but for the sake of the many for whom the church and her message are foreign. We have a strange feeling that if Jesus himself, Jesus alone with his word, could come into our midst at sermon time, we should find quite a different set of people hearing the word and quite a different set rejecting it. This always resonated with me, and I think it resonates because it resonates with the gospel of Luke. Who is drawn to Jesus and who is repelled by him? The self-righteous, the people that look down on others, the people that are sure that they are the good people, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're repelled by him. And yet, an odd group of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, are drawn to him. Now, the reason, you know, uh, I think we, uh, you know, Luke talks about tax collectors and sinners here, uh, sinners is sort of a vague category. And the good news is that each one of us has, in our own mind, a category of who we think sinners are. It's probably like whatever the opposite of your convictions is, right? Whatever other side of the political aisle you may see, that's your definition of the sinner, right? Or maybe it's a different group of people, or, you know, for many of you, it may be your actual literal neighbors, <laughs> maybe the, the sinners that you know. And yet the surprise of the gospel is that those are surprisingly the people that come into Jesus's orbit, which should make all of us as religious people who go to church step back and say, why is that the case? Why is that the case? I mean, really, why is that how the magnet of Jesus works? And it's that question that Jesus addresses here in these parables. Now, if you were to look down at Luke chapter 15, look with me real fast. Jesus gives three parables back to back to back. Uh, the first parable is a simple one about a lost sheep that leaves the fold. The second parable, starting in verse 8, is about a woman who loses one of her drachmas, a silver coin, a day's wage. Now, she had ten of them, and now she only has nine. And then, starting in verse 11, we get probably the most famous parable of all time. It's the parable of the prodigal son, about a son who had gone lost in a far country, and his older brother. So, all that to say, you know, what are we supposed to make of this surprising story of Jesus making room for people? Well, not to belabor the point, but I just want to plant this thought in your mind. Look at verse 2. What's the accusation of Jesus that they're making? What do they, what do they indict him with? This man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, uh, I know many of you will probably be familiar with the phrase that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I think for many of us, we know what that means by Jesus is the truth. Like Jesus is the only one who truly tells us the full revealed truth of God. He is the word in flesh. He is God among us. And then we also have an idea of what it means by he's life because he gives us meaning in our life today, but he also gives us life eternal. But what does Jesus mean when he says he is the way? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the way? Well, what I would suggest to you, friends, is it means that Jesus is the way that life is lived. It is a rhythm of life. He's the way that you and I live this life. And part and parcel with the way that Jesus lived was he used tables as places of belonging. I mean, what do the Pharisees charge him with? Eating with the wrong kind of people. And I know many of you have heard me say this before, but I think this is the way of Jesus, is that you and I, we begin to see our dinner tables as the mission field. Uh, the dinner table is a place where you can invite people into incredible belonging and fellowship. Uh, think about it, you know, this way. Um, you know, see if you can follow this, you know, syllogism, like this logical, you know, thought. All right, so in Genesis 1, God creates, you know, people what? He creates them male and female, and then what's their very first job? 
they're, they're naked gardeners. You know, they would fit in the Applegate Valley really well, right? <laughs> they were naked gardeners, right? And a garden means what? Some of you know that, remember this, a garden means what? Food. And food means what? A table. And a table means what? Fellowship and belonging. Jesus brings people into his fellowship, and he lets them know that they belong at the table with him. So what I would suggest to you is that Jesus is not endorsing everything that they're doing. He's not saying that, well, I'm going to affirm every one of your life decisions. In fact, that's the, the opposite of the parables. The point is, is that Jesus is finding lost sheep who don't know how to live, who don't know what life is all about, who are lost in every sense of the term, and he's bringing them back home. But he does it by bringing them into his magnetic orbit, into his way of life. And for you and me as Christians, that's part and parcel with the way that we live. We bring people into our orbit. We let them get close so that we can hopefully draw them in to a relationship with the Father. So why, is, why does Jesus do this? I mean, why, why is this Jesus' mission? If God entered our world to start having meals with the wrong kind of people, you know, what is Jesus teaching us? Why would he do this? Um, well, I want to give you sort of three, three things to notice in these parables. Um, I preached on the parable of the prodigal son around Christmas time, so I'm not going to go on to the, you know, the second half of this chapter. We're going to just look at these first two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But I want you to sort of see three things, okay? Um, I want you to see the value that Jesus is talking about that we have. I want you to see the surprise in the story, and I want you to see the joy. Right? So if you're looking for an outline, it's the value, the surprise, and the joy. All right, so let's look at the value. What are we learning from Jesus in these parables? So Jesus is bringing people into his magnetic orbit. Uh, it's repelling some people, but drawing an interesting group of people around him. And in verse 3, he tells them this parable to answer the question, why does Jesus do this? Why is he living like this? Why would God, when he took on human flesh, live like this? And he says, well, the best answer I can give you is I can tell you a story. You know, there's a guy, he's a shepherd, and uh, he's got a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. And so what would any good shepherd do? Well, a good shepherd would leave the 99, and he would go find the one, and then once he's found it, he would be ecstatic. He would put it on its shoulders. It's probably exhausted. It may have gotten hurt at some point. And so what he does is he puts the, you know, the little sheep on his shoulders, and he rejoices on the way back. And then his joy isn't complete, because when he gets back, he does what? He tells all of his friends, and he knocks on the door, and his neighbor says, guess what? I'm so happy I found this lost sheep. And then Jesus gives the point of the story. Look at verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So the first thing that you and I need to see out of this parable, out of hopefully the voice of Jesus in these parables, at a baseline is you need to recognize the value of every human soul. That's the very first thing you need to recognize, and it's a, it's a shocking statement in some ways, but it really shouldn't shock us at all. And it's, friends, it is fundamental to understanding these parables. The shepherd deems that one sheep utterly valuable. I mean, think about it this way. If you had 99 sheep or, I don't know, 99, you know, cans of Coke, and you lost one of them, you may not be that worried about it. But, friends, think about that. In Jesus's analogy, even one sheep is utterly worth all of the time and energy and effort. It's the utter value of even one sheep that the shepherd would go out for it. Uh, actually, it's interesting because the value of each of the things in this chapter increases. 
You know, we may say, well, I guess, you know, a shepherd cares more about a sheep than I would. But the second story is a little different. In the first parable, it's about a guy who brings his friends together because he found something. In the second parable, Jesus uses a woman. And he says, it's like a woman who loses one of her 10 coins. And then she calls her friends and neighbors together and they rejoice. But actually, what I would suggest to you is that the point of the coin being lost is that it is a heightening of the value of the object. Uh, you know, right there, when it says it's a silver coin, we think, well, I guess, you know, people used change back then. Remember when we used to use change? Do you even know what that is? You know, I'm looking at, like, the people under the age of 20, and it's like, have you ever actually used a coin for a reason? Probably not. Well, back in the day, people used to use coins. It's hard to believe. And uh, in the ancient world, they were called drachmas. And when you were a, if you were a normal, you know, middle-class person, you know, normal person, you would get one silver coin, a drachma, for a day's wage. And so having 10 of them was quite a big deal. And actually, what we know from ancient times is when women would get married and they would go on their wedding day, you know what they would wear? They would wear a headdress with 10 drachmas, 10 silver coins on their headdress. And they were akin to maybe your engagement ring. And actually, they were so valuable to a Jewish woman in the ancient world that even if she were, you know, like utterly broke and was in a huge amount of debt, nobody could take her debt from her headdress. You couldn't even take it. You couldn't even impound her headdress because it was part and parcel with her wedding day. And so, isn't that interesting that Jesus uses that analogy? Imagine a woman had 10 drachmas. Imagine a woman had 10 silver coins and she lost one. Well, can you see how that's a heightened value? From a lost sheep to now, this thing that's utterly meaningful to this woman. And what does she do? She sweeps the whole house. <laughs> I love that, right? Uh, they probably would have had, you know, uh, uh, they would not have had tile or hardwood in their houses back the day, right? And they maybe would have had one window in their home. And so you can imagine it'd be pretty dark. And so she scours the entire house. It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And then when she actually finds the drachma, is it any surprise that she goes to her friends and says, I found this precious, valuable thing that's irreplaceable? It is precious to me. You know, I don't have time to go into the uh, parable of the prodigal son, but again, the third and final of the lost things is a son is lost. You see how it goes from a sheep to this wedding present to a son. You see, what Jesus is trying to get you to see is the incredible value that Jesus sees each person having, that God deems you valuable now, that's really hard, I think, for, you know, some of our, our ears to hear. And, uh, you know, I think part of it is because when we really think about value and, like, what am I meaningful of, you know, what, what makes me meaningful, what gives my life value, you know, we live in a sort of uh, moralistic world. We live in a very therapeutic world, to be honest. And uh, it, a lot of the way that we conceptualize life is built around this idea of self-esteem, right? So if, you wanna, if you're bad and you're depressed, what you should do is you should do things that make you more proud of yourself, right? It's very therapeutic. And uh, the problem, of course, is that if your fundamental understanding is my value comes from the things that I do, right, or my accomplishments, um, the, challenge, the problem with that, friend, is it's going to kick you into one of two extremes. On one hand, you may end up becoming very proud because you may actually succeed, right? That may be one of the worst things that could happen to you, right, is if you're utterly compelled to be as rich as you can, the worst thing that could happen to you, friend, is actually you become as rich as you can, and you'll sacrifice everything in your life for that level of success. And then when your career's over, you won't know what to do because you live for something other than that. And then you look down at all of these other people who weren't as successful as you, 
right? That's, that's one trap. If, you, if your value is tied to your accomplishments, the trap is, is pride. The other trap, the other end of the spectrum, could be self-loathing. It could be self-loathing because you realize, I haven't done anything, I haven't succeeded, I haven't gotten my career to where I want it, my family doesn't look the way that I want it, and so you're stuck with self-loathing because you tie your value to the things that you do. So if you haven't done enough, well, then you just hate yourself. But then when you actually get things done, you become unbearably proud. (laughs) And then for some of you in the room, you actually do both of those things, and so you vacillate from self-loathing to utter pride all the time. You know, uh, in 2005, uh, these two sociologists, a lady named Melinda Denton at UT San Antonio and uh, Christian Smith, who's a professor at Notre Dame, they interviewed 3,000 teenagers in America to try to understand what you know, teenagers in America understand faith to be. And uh, they actually coined a term called moralistic therapeutic deism. Anybody ever heard of that? Now, this was their summary uh, as two sociologists defining what most Americans believe religion to be. And that both of these people argue that it's not actually the claims of Christianity. It's not necessarily a clear understanding of the gospel. It's actually a folk religion. That's what they call it, a folk religion called moralistic therapeutic deism. And they go on. They, they invented that term and they define it this way. They say this is primarily what teenagers in 2005 understand religion to be. Number is They summarize in four points. This is moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, God wants people to be nice, fair, and that's what all the major religions teach. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. Number two, the central goal in life is to be happy. Primary goal of life, to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number three, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number four, good people go to heaven when they die. So, you know, this is sociologists from two separate universities assessing 3,000 teenagers in America saying this is most people's understanding of what religion is. And primarily, this is what Christianity is. Number one, God wants you to be a good, nice person. Number two, the central point of your life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. That's, that's the therapy part, right? Number three, God doesn't necessarily need to be actively involved in your life except when you're in a crisis. That's deism. Yes, there's a God, but there's a separation you know, he's the divine clockmaker. He made the clock, but now he steps back and the clock functions on its own. Maybe God can pop up in an emergency, but he doesn't really want to be that involved with you. He's like, you know, you know, your parents when you finally leave the house. Like, come when you need us, but leave us alone and don't bring the grandkids, right? <laughs> Number four, good people go to heaven when they die. So I guess what I want to suggest to you, friends, is uh, think about that conceptualization of what the gospel message is, and then compare it to what Jesus says the gospel is. Did Jesus come to make you more moral? To make you a better person? Or think about it this way. uh, Is the central purpose of your life to feel good about yourself and to be happy? Kind of, right? There's an element of truth to both of those things, right? If you know Christ, hopefully you'll become more moral. But is that really the point? And hopefully you will feel better about yourself, but it'll come in a different way. And then, is God like a deist? Is that right? That God is separate from you, and he'll come when you need him, but for the most part, he wants you to figure it out on your own, you know? 
Think about it this way. When Jesus is trying to explain what God is like, this is what he says. He says, you are a precious, valuable thing in the eyes of the Father. Regardless of whether you are a sheep stuck in a ditch, whether you have only experienced failure in your life, or whether you're a silver coin and everybody knows it, you are precious in the eyes of the Father, and He loves you, and He is not distant from you. He's actually searching for you right now. He's calling you by name. I mean, that's the mental picture that Jesus presents to you about what God is like. He's not far away from you. He's not just around when you need Him. Instead, He's actively moving towards you. He is like a shepherd searching, seeking for the lost sheep. You know, I think this is why, friends, I think what faith requires of each one of us is an actual encounter with God. It's not an encounter with a pastor. Uh, it's not an encounter with a church. And faith is not just the faith of your parents. It's a deep personal understanding that whether your life is a series of failures or a series of successes, that God is calling you by name and wants to know you and wants you to know him. And nobody can do that for you except yourself. Nobody can come to the Father for someone else's sake. You know, why do you think Jesus uses um, this image of the sheep? Isn't that an interesting, you know, analogy? Um, I think it's because it speaks so much to what Jesus has come to do. You know, I, all the time we tell people God loves you, and uh, that's very true. But I love that when Jesus tells the gospel, he doesn't say it that way. You know what he says? He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So just a radically different presentation of the gospel, right? Because it tells us who God is. God is the good shepherd. And it tells us what he had to do in order to show his love for us. He had to take the punishment of our sin and lay down his life so that we could have life eternal. But friends, this is where, you know, the surprise really starts to come in. So hopefully you see the value that Jesus places on everybody, but there's a surprise to all of this, and you probably already have noticed it. So what I'm suggesting to you is Jesus sees utter value in every person, but the surprise is that God searches for people. And the surprising thing is if you were to go on to the parable of the prodigal son, what you'll realize is that we're all lost. The Bible says we have all fallen away. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's no one who seeks for God. There's nobody who's got it all figured out. In fact, if you were to read the parable of the prodigal son, that's the whole point of that parable, is that there is a younger son who has run away far from home, living off in a far country, who is lost. And there's also a dutiful, moral older brother who's always done the right thing, but he's also lost. You see, that's the utter shock of the gospel, right, is that we all need to be brought in by the magnetic love of God and realize that we are all lost. You know, if you were to look at the parable of the prodigal son, you know, I can't help but think of my own testimony. Uh, who, who here is a younger sibling? Raise your hand if you're the younger sibling. Anybody here? Okay. Raise your hand if you're the older sibling. Right? Yeah. The older siblings raise their hands way quicker. You know why? Because you guys are dutiful. You're in charge. You're very good people and everybody knows it, and your younger siblings are typically the wild ones. <laughs> typically, not always, but typically they're the wild ones. That's the point of the parable, right? The older brother stays home, and he always lives, you know, near his parents. Uh, I love how Tim Keller in The Prodigal God points that out. Older siblings almost always live near their parents. You know, my older brother lives near my mom and dad. I haven't lived near my parents since I was 18. I left the house for a far country, and I'm living in a far country, at least as far as I'm concerned. I'm on the other end. 
You know, but um, really, the, the change in my life happened when, uh, you know, as a sophomore in college, I'll never forget the day, a guy named Kyle, you know, we were talking about faith, and I had deconstructed my faith, and I didn't want anything to do with religion, didn't want anything to do with Christianity, and uh, it felt very freeing in the moment, and, uh, you know, like probably the low point was I remember my old high school friend, when I caught up with him, he asked me if I would pray for him. I said, well, that doesn't do anything. I'm not a Christian anymore. Well, you know, fast forward about a year, and I'm hanging out one night uh, with a guy, Kyle, and he says, do you love God? And I said, that's a stupid question. And he said, no, it's like the most important question. Do you love God? And I said, well, of course I don't love him. He sends people to hell. He's judgmental, and I don't like Christians. What's there to love? And he said, you really don't love God? And I said, no. I mean, I'd never said those words out loud, but I realized in the moment it was true. And uh, I'll never forget, I gave him this analogy. I said, you know, I may believe in God, but that doesn't mean that I love God. And the difference, I said, I said it this way. I said, I can, I can understand that the Yankees are the best team in baseball. They have won more World Series than everybody else, and they had all that Steinbrenner money forever. They're the best team in baseball. But that doesn't make me what? That doesn't make me a Yankees fan. You know, I'm a, a Cardinals fan, for one thing, you know, and I hate the Yankees. <laughs> so someone can live their whole life knowing, believing there's a God, but that does not mean that they love God. You know, what I realized then was to really come to faith in Jesus was not a matter of information, knowing points of doctrine, as important as points of doctrine are, it was a realization that I had no love for God and that somehow I had missed the whole point of Christianity, which was to see the heart of God and to be magnetically drawn to Him. My whole life I had been like around Him, but I was around Him like the wrong end of a magnet. Friends, every one of us is valuable, is loved by God. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice because I call them by name. Friends, do you know that you love God? Do you love God? Do you love Him? You know, I think when we think about faith, we think, well, am I a moral person? Am I better than those knuckleheads around me? We think, do I feel good about myself? Do I affirm myself? And then is God around for a tight pinch? Friends, it may be that you're believing in moralistic, therapeutic deism and not the gospel. Because what the gospel says is you're valuable regardless of your achievements. And instead of God being far away, he's utterly near. And then feeling good about yourself, understanding the good life, is not affirming all of your life decisions. What it is, is it's getting in line with what God says life is all about. Or let me put it a different way. This is my third and final point. It's about realizing that the greatest joy in your life, the thing that excites your heart, is actually seeing the heart of God excited. You should see the value that Jesus puts on people. You should see the surprise, and you should see the joy. Every one of these stories ends with a party, okay? I love parties. I love throwing parties. I love going to parties. Parties are the best. You know, you're... you're do you not like parties? All of you are looking at me like you're a bunch of Baptists or something. You're like, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love Baptists. My mom's a Baptist. But think about this. Every, every one of these parables ends with a party. What happens? The guy finds his sheep, and then he makes his neighbors 
party with him. And then what happens when the woman finds the coin? She throws a party for the neighborhood. And then the parable of the prodigal son, where does that story even end? It, it, they slaughtered the fattened calf, and there's a party, and it's such a big party that the older brother and all of his resentment and dutiful living can hear it in his own field. And he comes and says, what's this party all about? Friends, I think the reason that we want people to come to faith, you know, if you could, if you could go there with me, the reason we get excited about the love of God is because at a profound level, God is the happiest person in the universe. I mean, has it ever occurred to you? Who's the happiest person you know? Who's the happiest person you know? Is actually God. Uh, Psalm 115 says it this way, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleasures. You know, it'd be utter happy. Getting, if you got your way all the time ever and you could always get what you want, we'd be like, that's pretty good life, right? Pretty happy. God does what he wants all of the time. He is the source and the creator of happiness. In fact, Jesus comes along in the Beatitudes and he says, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who are persecuted. Happy are those who are the peacemakers. You see, Jesus does offer a happy life, but it's not the way that we think it is. It's a Jesus-centered happiness. Um, and this idea about God rejoicing, uh, you know, this is uh, this image of like the shepherd you know, celebrating, throwing this huge party. Jesus doesn't just pull this out of a hat. He actually is using the Old Testament to come up with this image. In Zephaniah 3.17, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, it depicts God like this. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I mean, friends, the image of God's deafening voice, the sound of many thunders singing over his beloved people. If you love God, there is some part of you that rejoices in the joy of God. I mean, think about it this way. For any of you that's in a relationship that's not utterly selfish, right? If there's any part of you that's in a normal, healthy relationship, there's nothing happier and nothing more joyful than what? Making the other person happy. I mean, you know this instinctively when you have kids, right? Christmas is never better than when you have kids because what? Because you get a bunch of good gifts? No, because you get to see your kids excited. If you're celebrating your anniversary, right, there's nothing better than making your spouse happy. I mean, this is inherent to relationships. You know, we think that it's all about making ourselves feel good about who we are, but what if life were utterly others-oriented and the greatest joy was living for others? And friends, what if to have a relationship with God, it meant that the thing that made you the most excited in life was hearing the shouts of joy from God, was seeing God excited and ecstatic. And when God throws a party, what's the theme of the party? What makes God happy? Well, Jesus tells you in the parable, 99 moralistic people that don't think they need God, that think God is far away, huh? give me just one person who turns the magnet around and comes back to the Father man, let's light the fireworks. Let's throw the party. If there's any part of you, Christian, that has the Holy Spirit in you, there is a deep spiritual yearning to see people come to faith, to see people reconciled to the Father. Because not only does it make that person's life all of a sudden make sense, it also causes the heart of God to rejoice. 
And if you love God, nothing makes you happier than seeing God joyful and rejoicing. I mean, every part of you should want to be in heaven with the angels, worshiping and celebrating. You know, your heart should be like a magnet beating out of your chest, coming closer. So um, let me just finish. How are we going to do this? You know, how do we hopefully help people be reconciled to God? Uh, that's been a big thought in my mind. Uh, you know, the easiest way to do it would be for you to talk to them. Uh, another easy thing is you could invite people to church. Uh, you know, if you, you know, trust studies, what we'll find is one out of three people will come to church if invited. Uh, a vast majority of people are never invited to church. So you could consider inviting your friends to come with you, especially friends that don't know the Lord. But this fall, what we're going to do is we're doing this thing called Alpha. And you heard Brian and Joey talk about it. But basically, it's every Sunday night, starting in September. Uh, we're going to have child care going. We're going to have middle school youth group going. Uh, they're going to do something special. But we're going to basically set a table for anybody who wants to explore Christianity. It's not really a Bible study. It's not for Christians per se. But it is for Christians to bring non-Christian friends to come safely explore the faith. And uh, it's a wonderful opportunity. We're praying that 50 people will attend that don't know Jesus. And uh, friends, the reason we do it is because we love people, because we know God loves us, and we want to see God happy. And he is already happy, so why wouldn't we want to join him in rejoicing? Uh, with that, let's watch a, a, a quick clip about Alpha. Every day we ask so many questions. What should I wear? What's the weather going to be like? How am I going to fit everything in? But then there are those bigger questions, like why am I here? Where am I heading? Is there more to life than this? arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with, is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. magazines, I had a Beamer, and I was so unhappy. It was a realization maybe that I would, I would never find happiness where I was looking for it. I think for so many years, you know, I always just strived to be strong in myself. All I needed was me and my buddies and, you know, would be like invincible. But the truth is, none of us are. And I found purpose, I found meaning, I found hope. God took something so broken and made it a beautiful art piece. Alpha is a place where you can be yourself. You can say what you think and challenge everything. No question is too complex or too simple. And what your point of view is, is as important as anyone else's. We are going on a journey together, an adventure to explore the questions of life, faith, and meaning.